Come on in, guys. Hey, today um, I, I have a, a friend of mine coming to preach. His name's Ryan Daffron. He, him and his wife are here, Mindy. Ryan and I met a few years ago just doing ministry in different churches. He was planting a church at the time, and we brought youth uh, at, a, at a camp at the same time. We met there and became really good friends since then. Um, we, our, just our families just really enjoy each other and love connecting. I, I wanted you to, if you haven't heard him before, first of all, he does a great job when he comes and he brings the word. He loves Jesus. He's a, he's a veteran ministry guy. He's been a churchman for years and years. He planted a church, and he continues to be involved with overseas missions. In fact, he's, he's going away again, going to, I think, South Africa, but I'll let him tell you about that. But I, I dig him. And so when I have someone, a friend, come and bring the word, it, it's not just because he's a friend, and it's not just because it gives me rest, and it gives the guy, other guys that we have come preach, gives them proper rest as well. But I just love to hear from the heart of someone who's just saturated with Jesus, who loves the word and knows how to live it out in, um, in hard places as well. So Ryan, come on up and just uh, bring the word for us, brother. And I'll just pray for you. Thank you, Father, for good friendship and, and because of what we have common in Christ Jesus. I pray that you'd be with my brother this morning. Be with us in our hearts, that we'd be open to what you have to say to us through your word, by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Did I turn it? Oh, it's on. Good morning. Uh, uh, just now, Israel, when you were talking, uh, it wasn't a few years ago. It was like 2013. That was a long time ago. Uh, I, my parents were missionaries. And I grew up in Quito, Ecuador, South America. Uh, and we went there when I was three years old. And I, did, I came to the States. Well, let's see, by the time I was 19, I had 20-something addresses. We lived in Ecuador, Panama, Costa Rica. And then uh, when we were in those countries, we still moved around quite a bit. And uh, I came to the States in 1993 to go to college. And, and that was a rough transition for me because I, I look, how many of you speak Spanish at all? Okay, or maybe no some Spanish. I look puro gringo, right? Yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah, eso es un gringo. That's like white guy in Spanish. So I look 100%, you know, white guy, lighter skin, light eyes, light hair. But uh, growing up in South America, I felt very much Ecuadorian. I mean, it's like the culture that I knew. And then I come to the States, and I look 100% American, and I did not feel American. It was a rough transition. Uh, when I was a, a, a kid, my parents, they, they, they used to use this phrase. They'd use this phrase that maybe you've used or you've heard throughout, you know, your Christian journey. And it's the phrase, you know, God told us. Have you heard that? Have you used that? God said, right? God told me. And as a kid, that was really confusing for me. Uh, it, I, didn't, I used to tell people that I, I, I've been Christian my whole life. Like, I, I, we know now that's, like, impossible, right? There has to become a, t a time and place where you, you, you say to the Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for my sins, that God raised you on the third day, and I'm asking you to be in charge of my life as I follow your rules and principles to live out the kingdom of God on earth. Your will here, like your will is being done in heaven, right? So we all know there's that actual time, but I didn't really know that. I thought I was just kind of born Christian because my family always told me, God told us this. God said, we're going to go to Ecuador. God said, we're going to do the God. God said, God said. But I never really heard God speak. 
Like the way that I was beginning to understand it, right? I could hear my parents tell me, do this, don't do that. I couldn't necessarily hear God say that. Am I alone in this journey? Right? I mean, this is like an easy, basic concept, right? So then how in the world do we know when God's speaking to us? Well, I mean, we can just look like our practical, theological, um, try to common sense what we know about Christianity and say, well, we have the Word of God, and so we know what He tells us in there. We have prayer, so, so we, we begin to understand that it's a conversation, but that, that still can be confusing, especially how that word has been used now throughout culture, right? So I grew up really struggling with what does it mean when God says something? Like, what is that? Like, how did God tell you that you were going to go to Ecuador? And so I had, um, I, I had an, uh, an adverse reaction to Christianity growing up because I grew up where Christianity had more to do with behavior modification than it had to do with internal things. I mean, they cared way more about how I looked and how I acted than what was going on. Uh, The term we use for that is legalistic. Are you familiar with this term? There's a, I can't remember, there's a comedian that used to say something like, um, uh, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go out with girls that do, or something like that, right? So that's kind of the idea. I remember the day that the teacher told us that we had a really, really important decision to make. And she stood up on top of, of uh, the stairs like this, and I remember I was like six years old, and there's a bunch of us kids, and we're sitting you know, down on the floor, and she's looking right down at us, and she says, today you guys have a very, you boys and girls have a very important decision to make. And, I mean, I want to be a good boy, right? I'm six. You have a very important decision to make. You can choose Jesus or not choose Jesus today. If you choose Jesus, you're going to walk on streets of gold. And you're never going to cry. And your parents are going to be able to pick you up and hug you there. And everything that you've ever wanted in life is going to be there. It's going to be beautiful. You'll never have tears. You'll never hurt again. It's wonderful. Choose Jesus. If you don't, then you live in this place called hell where you burn forever. And your parents, they can't pick you up. And they won't help you. And you cry all the time. So what do you choose? Well, I mean, I'm choosing gold, 100%, right? I'm like choosing gold, and I'm choosing parents picking me up, <laughs> and I'm choosing like, like the good things. I don't want to burn forever. And so it, it began this relationship with God that I want to make sure I don't burn forever. Now, let's not escape the reality that everything that's said is still true. Presentation matters. Let's not forget the reality that is true. You choose Jesus, there is no pain and suffering at the end of your life when you're with the Lord, and you don't choose the Lord, and the scripture tells us there is pain and suffering and separation from God. So we can't say that that's not true, but oh my goodness, what do you do to a six-year-old? So what started happening was I started learning how to live a Christian life and where I look like I'm behaving, I look like I'm following rules, I look like I'm do you know I'm I'm just I'm I'm dressing right I'm acting right I'm saying things right, until I had my very first conflict as a teenager where the things in my heart really weren't matching up. Have you been there? 
It was at that time that I realized, well, if everything about the Lord has everything to do with behavior, well, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to live, I want to live my life, my way. Rebellion. What is it in the human nature? What is it about us as people that when we know what rules to follow, we know how to behave, we, there's, a, there's, there's either a response to completely obey and completely do those things or to fight against it. What's that about? Have you ever thought about that? What's in our hearts that does that? And the scripture tells us early on it's pride. Pride to do things my way to do something someone else's way. But there's really something great and beautiful about rules. And rules established by authority is a really beautiful thing in some way because it helps us feel like we're hitting the mark, doesn't it? If you say that I need to wear my seatbelt when I drive and I wear my seatbelt, I'm obeying the rules. I am a what? I'm a good citizen. If you tell me to obey these rules and I hit those rules, then I am a successful person, right? This is the issue of the Pharisees in the New Testament. They knew the laws of God. They were religious leaders and knew the laws of God, and they felt pride in their heart about obeying those rules to the iota, it's called, to the letter. And this is why Jesus was so rebellious. And this is what we're going to understand in the text as we continue to go through the book of Matthew, is that Jesus is not as concerned with the rules as he is with your heart and your relationship with him. And it is really hard, it is very hard to, to, to figure out your, how successful you are based on a relationship, right? That's why rules are much easier. You tell me to do this, I'll meet this. You tell me to do this and I don't do that, now there's a definition for me. I'm either obeying or I'm not obeying. But when it comes to relationship, it's a lot more convoluted. It's a lot more blurry. It's a lot harder because it takes work and it takes trial and it takes error. And it's much sometimes easier, at least in the mind of the first century Pharisees, it's, it's better to follow rules so that I can say I'm doing good than to recognize I'm a broken person and I need another, I need a savior to help me lead my life through these things. Do you understand the concept? This is the issue the Pharisees have with Jesus. And I try to picture Jesus. We're going we're gonna to read this. We're, we're in the, you're in the series of Matthew, right? So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 as we go through this. I, there's a book that I've read um, that basically articulated that Jesus was a rebel. And I like that term, right? Because I'm, I like being a rebel. I mean, all full disclosure, that seatbelt thing I shared, like I don't want to wear my seatbelt. You know why? I, there's one reason I don't want to wear my seatbelt. You know why? The government tells me I have to. <laughs> I like have this rebellion. Don't tell me what to do. So I don't. And you know why I put it on? So my car stops making noise at me. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> As we go through this, this thing about Jesus, like this book that I read, it talks about how Jesus is a rebel. It's hard for me to understand his tone and his tenor and his personality and the way his face looked. Because I read what we're about to read and I see how Jesus... I, I hear and, can, and I can like identify and understand what Jesus is saying, but it's void of all like tone. And so I imagine Jesus saying things to people where in my mind it would be kind of snotty. I know Jesus isn't snotty, but if I were to say half the things that Jesus says, it would be snotty, right? Woman, don't you know it's not my time? <laughs> Whoa, dude, that's your mom. What are you talking to her like that for? <laughs> 
So Jesus is um, a rebel. But what makes Jesus so rebellious is that he is changing the law. And he's forcing people to recognize it's not just about your behavior, it's about your heart. It's not about all the things you say you can do and what you follow to say you're successful. It's about a relationship with me and what makes you successful is that I love you and that you love me. It doesn't, man, you guys, I grew up, seriously, I just remembered this, this is like off notes. I, I remember just now, I was remembering that my school growing up used to give us the best Christian award. Yeah, I totally forgot about that till just now. As, as you know, it's part of the way that the Holy Spirit works with Ryan Daffron, right? So it's like, I do have my notes. I prepared, 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 but I'm also relying on the Holy Spirit. Okay. I mean, I remember the school would say, at the end of the year, you get the best Christian award. And, and, and all of the reasons why someone got the best Christian award were behavior. Because that person followed the rules. I was really good friends with Hillary who in 1992 got the Best Christian Award and two months later wanted to take her own life and had declared in her journals and confessed to a group of us friends that she has never believed in the Lord. Poor Hillary, right? So what, Jesus, what makes Jesus so rebellious is he wants us to get our eyes off of our what we should do and to get our eyes onto who Jesus is so that he can transform our lives. But people, but people who, who like rules and, and the religious establishment of the day, needless to say, their feathers are ruffled. So let's look at what's happened up to this point. And I know that you've been in this chapter and in this book for a while, but I think it's important for us just to kind of review as I'm trying to lead us to this place. We just discovered that Jesus is rounding out the, first week, the, the last week of his entire life, earthly life. He's been on the earth for roughly 33 years. For the last three of his 33 years, he is walking around Israel, going into difficult places like Samaria, where people were considered like half people, not real people, they're like there's dogs, and then there's Samaritans. And Jesus is hanging out with them. He's like not afraid to hang out with people who, who are the worst of the worst in the, in the view of society. He's done miracles. He's shown that he has miracles. Uh, he's shown that he has power over nature. He's shown that he has power over death. He's shown that he has power over evil. And he's shown that he has power over sickness. He's shown in his three years of ministry that he has power over all things. He's begun speaking in parables, in this kind of mystical language. And you know what parables are. I'm sure you've, you've talked about this. I'm just going to reiterate and say it my way. You've talked about that, right? That's what parables are. Yeah. So let me just use like Ryan language that parables are images of, of the kingdom of God put into vocabulary that people can begin to, to relate to. But what's really powerful about parables is they're word bombs. 
They're idea word bombs. Where Jesus would say a parable and it would be planted into the life of the listener. And they might get it and they might not. And all of a sudden they're walking on in their day and it, and it explodes. And they're like, oh my gosh, I think I just understood what he said. And that bomb can go off at any time in someone's life. So now he's rounding out his final week of his life, earthly ministry. And he's come in to Jerusalem in the form of a king. And the minute he walks into Jerusalem, the first thing he does, according to Matthew, is he goes to the temple, the religious iconic epicenter of Israel. It's the epicenter of their religious life, it's the epicenter of their political life, and it's the epicenter of their economic life. And Jesus walks right in there and he causes a scene. We've seen this, right? He sees how they're doing all three things at once in that epicenter. Politically, how they're negotiating deals and they're trying to figure out how they can trap Jesus and kill Jesus, but at the same time they're scared of the people. We see that they're using the religious system because the sacrifices are about to go down there. And then we see how they're using economics, economically, because they're ripping people off, exchanging money and doing this whole thing. And Jesus has had it. He turns over the tables. And now these religious leaders want to know, who are you? And what gives you the right to be in charge? You got it? That's what's happening. That's what's happening chronologically. Spiritually, there's a whole other thing that's happening. Spiritually, Jesus has you in mind. Spiritually, Jesus has you in mind. Because he says, and we find out from Philippians, that Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus essentially says, God, I don't consider right now heaven something to hang on to. I want to go to earth and I want to take the form of a human being. And not just the form of a human being, I want to take on the form of a human being servant. So that people, your people, can get an understanding of who you are. Ephesians tells us, before the foundations of the world, like I don't even have a box for that, right? Like before Genesis 1.1. This is what he's saying. This is crazy. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Before the creation of the world was formed, God had a plan to save you. Spiritually, what's happening in Matthew is Jesus is demonstrating that he is the Messiah. He is the one that is going to save you. He has you in mind in 2019. Spiritually, what's going on? Jesus is trying to show all of Israel that he is a new and better Moses. This is a big deal. This is why in Matthew, Jesus is always teaching on a mountain. Have you noticed that? You don't see that in Mark and Luke and John as much. You don't see Jesus up on a mountain as much. Jesus is almost always teaching on a mountain. Why? Because he's trying to show the Jewish people that Jesus is the new and better Moses. That Jesus will and has done everything Moses did and failed at and is accomplishing it. That is why Matthew shows and tells us that Jesus went to Egypt as a baby. Because who went to Egypt? 
Who was led into the desert? Moses. Who was led out of the desert? Moses. Who taught from mountains and gave laws? Moses. So Jesus spiritually is trying to show the people of Israel that he is a new and better Moses, and he has you in view to save you as God's people. We also are discovering that Jesus is the king. And this is a really big deal. And the people of Israel want a king. They've wanted a king since way back in 1 Samuel. I don't know if you remember this story. If you don't, when you can't sleep tonight or you just uh, ditch uh, Israel for coffee, open up 1 Samuel chapter 8, where you find that Jesus, or God, excuse me, did not have kings. He had judges that were his mouthpiece that would speak and lead the people. And the people of Israel raised their hand and they said, we don't, we don't want no judge. This is like 2019 language. In Hebrew, it was grammatically better. We don't want no judge. We want a king. We want a king like all these other nations. Do you see all these other nations out here? Samuel, do you see them? We want to be like them, so give us a king. Samuel's ticked off, man. He's been out of shape. He goes to God and says, why don't you just wipe these people out? They're rebellious and awful. And God says, yo, Samuel, this is not about you. This is about me. This is about me. I am clearly their king. They want a human being king. And so that's where the king and kingdom was established in 1 Samuel. When God said, if you guys want a king, you'll have a king. Let me tell you what the consequences are. 1 Samuel chapter 8 gives us all the consequences of what it means to have a king. And the people are like, we get that. We want a king nonetheless. So in Matthew, Jesus is making it clear that he is the true king. He deserves to be obeyed and followed. Jesus is the new and better Moses. He has established a new law, and he is the mouthpiece for God. And then he established that he was a prophet by the way in which he could teach. Do we have our minds around what's happening? Can you feel the tension if you were there? Now put yourself in a place of a rule follower where for over 2,000 years, you and your people have followed rules. And now Jesus is saying, it ain't about the rules. It's about your heart. And they were saying, okay, well, who do you think you are? If that's true, who do you think you are? And if it would have been me, and thank goodness it's not, if it would have been me, I would have said, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, the world was made through me. So I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> Jesus does it in such a much loving way. Jesus does it through parables. So we understand that Jesus' authority is being questioned. People want to know, who makes you in charge? What gives you the right? Because there's a two-year-old in all of us. In all of us, there's a two-year-old, and a two-year-old wants to know why all the time and wants to know who made you boss. So Jesus tells this story, verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he leased it to the tenants, and he went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get this fruit. And the tenants, uh, the tenants took his servants, and they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. 
Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? It's a great question. So we've got it, right? We've got what's happened? There's a dude who owns a lot of land. He built a vineyard. He put a wall around it to make it safe. He put a tower in it so that you could see what's coming. And he gave it to people to run and steward and take care of. Now it's harvest time. And so he sent his servants and he said, hey, why don't you go to my vineyard and why don't you collect the fruit that is actually mine because I planted it, I bought it, I provided for it. The stewards that are running it for me, uh, you know, it's, uh, go get the fruit. And as they come, the tenants that are running it beat, kill, and terrorize the servants. So then finally, the guy's like, the, 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 the landowner says, you know what, I'm sure they'll respect my son. I'm sure they'll respect my son. So he sent his son, and they kill him. They kill him for profit, and they kill him for rights. We got it? That's what's happened. So, therefore, what the vineyard of the, or the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? For the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls, anyone, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 45 is revealing. Matthew tells us, it's, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So we get the story, right? So Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus tells this parable about the, you know, what's happened. They kill the son. So now what's the owner of the, par- what's the, owner of the vineyard going to do? Jesus says, well, the owner of the vineyard is going to come. He's going to throw those people out. He's going he's gonna to throw it out and he's going to give it to other people who will use the fruit better and who will give the fruit back to the owner. And then he quotes this verse, the cornerstone that was rejected will be now the cornerstone for something else. Anybody get it? I had a professor in seminary that said, uh, parables can never be fully understood. We have a parable that gives us a, how to interpret parables, but if you really want to know the theology of a person, ask them to, sh- to interpret a parable. Because Jesus says in the beginning, when he first did a parable about the sower and the, the seeds and the sower, uh, seeds and the sower, right? The guy with the seeds and the four seeds. Okay. Uh, Jesus says, these things will be hidden from you until a certain time. And so 
my seminary professor was arguing that we will never, we can guess, we can guess accurately with, with biblical study, we can like navigate and find out what we, but really it's theologically, you're going to find out where a person's at. So can we really fully understand this parable? To a degree. So what do we know? Well, we know from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, that God is talking through Isaiah to the people of Israel this exact parable. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, is this exact story, but there's one difference. So in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, Isaiah says to the people of Israel, there is a landowner who made a vineyard and he put a wall around it and he put up a a tower and he gave it to people. The difference is, in Isaiah, there was no fruit that was produced. And so Matthew's using this very well-known story and he's using it with the religious leaders to prove one significant point. And I want to share that point and then we're going to unpack what this tells us about God. We know from the beginning of the Old Testament that God decided to use the people of Israel as a model for what it looks like to be in relationship with him. You know this, right? If you want to know who God is and how he works relationally, we can look through the lens of the Old Testament and how he worked at the people of Israel. Now let's think about that. God looked at the people of Israel and he said, you are my people. You are the apple of my eye. You are a jewel to me. I will lead you to the promised land. I will give you things and I will bless you. I will be a blessing to you so that you can bless other people. I will lead you and guide you. I will live among you. This is the tabernacle and the temple. I will give you my value system. How I want you to live. Because I know what sin does to you, is what God is saying. Do you know why God hates sin? Have you ever asked that? God hates sin because of what it does to you. Because you're his. And he wants you to have a better life than you're tolerating. And he knows that you are a broken, jacked up person. And he knows how sin can find its way into your heart and mess you up. And so God says, I want to carve out of all the world the people of Israel so that I can lead you and show you how it is to live according to my principles and have the life that I've promised you. But what do we know about human nature? We're a piece of work, aren't we? You're a piece of work. I'm a piece of work. I mean, to say it really nice, we find in in, uh, Ephesians 2.8 that we are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. We're a piece of work. And we know that in human nature, we always want to fight against God. And so when the people of Israel got off track, when God said, this is what I want, I want you as a community, as my kingdom of people, to live a certain way, when they get off track, God would send his mouthpiece to people. He sent Jeremiah. He sent Jeremiah to the people of Israel. And he said, Jeremiah, 
I need you to be strong. He says in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 7. I need you to be a bronze wall, an iron pillar. I need you to, I need you to not be afraid to say the things I put in your mouth to the people. If you're afraid to say them, then I will make you afraid of them. You know what they did to Jeremiah? They took rocks and they stoned him and dragged him out of town. The people of Israel said, we don't want to hear what you have to say about God. We want to live our own life. We want to live our own way. So then God sent Amos. Amos chapter 7 to go to Israel. And Amos starts saying to people, to the people of Israel, look, you guys, we are oppressing the poor. We are, we are building our own houses. We are building our own kingdom and our own lives. And God has a heart for the poor and you are oppressing them. He goes so far to use graphic language in chapter 5 and 6 of Amos. Goes so far to use graphic language that it's implying that rich Israelites were eating fruit in front of starving people with no regard of sharing and helping. And God asked Amos to speak to his people about that. And you know what they did to him? They ran him out of town. They scared him to death and they chased him out of town. They kicked him out. And Jesus God, excuse me, looks at the landscape of Israel and he says, I want to, I need to save, I want to save my people. I have promised them a Messiah. I have promised them a Messiah and so I'm going to send my son, Jesus, to the people of Israel to show them that he is a new and better Moses, that he is the king, that he is the prophet, he is the long-awaited one that all the scriptures of the Old Testament have foretold. I'm going to send my son. I've sent my servants. They beat them and killed them. I'm going to send my son. So Jesus shows up, and he does some crazy miracles. And the last epic miracle he did before he walked into Jerusalem as a king was he healed a dude who had been dead for four days, Lazarus. And after Lazarus comes back to life, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, are having a meal together. Lazarus is just like, you know, he, we get the picture that he's just like lounging back and he's, he's, you know, drinking some great wine and having some great food. He's like, four days ago, you know, I was like dead and now I'm totally restored to life and I'm hanging out with Jesus. And Martha is serving because that's what Martha does and marries at the feet of Jesus, breaking open a bottle of some epic perfume and wiping his feet. It's like the image of worship. And the religious leader said, he's a problem. He's a problem. We need to kill him. So they come to Jesus and they say, who are you and what gives you the right? What is your authority here? So what do we think Jesus is saying in this parable? Here's the thing, and this is profound. Jesus is saying this. Well, let me read it and then let's look at it. Jesus said to them, verse 42, have you never read the scriptures? And by the way, uh, verse 42 is a direct quote from Psalm 118. Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. 
God had in his mind to use the people and nation of Israel to communicate to the, to the rest of the world that this is how God relates to his people. Jesus came as the son, the beloved son of the king, of God, to the people of Israel to say, look, God has sent me. It's time for us to harvest the fruit. It's time for us to get back to following God the way that God desires. And the religious leaders decided to kill Jesus. And so what Jesus has to say about that is, guys, and this is a tough one, he says to Israel, this is a tough one. And they know they're talking, he's talking about them because it says they perceived that he's talking about them. So we know that they get what he's saying. He says, guys, God's all done with Israel in this way. That's a hard statement. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being a leader religiously, politically, and economically, and this guy from Nazareth who has rumor that his like, mom never slept with anybody, but now he's here? Right? I mean, that's how they looked at him. Yeah, he does miracles. Yeah, he does all these other things. Yeah, he's a great teacher, and he talks in epic parables, but who does he think he is? And he's saying... I am God's son, and God is telling you he is done with the people of Israel in this way. That would be a hard thing to take. But he finishes it, right? He says, the stone that the builders rejected, the builders were the nation of Israel. They rejected the stone of God. It has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What Jesus is saying is God is no longer going to communicate through the rest of the world how to live in right relationship with the people of Israel. God is going to do that with non-Israelites. God is going to do that with Gentiles. God is going to do that with the church. Did you follow that? Now we know that God is still going to deal with Israel separately. But God changed his medium in how he's going to reach the nations. Whereas in the Old Testament, God was reaching the nations primarily and specifically through the Israel nation, God is now going to reach the nations through the church. Jesus is up on a mountain. Hey, when am I done? Now, now we find out how good I'm doing. Uh, what time? Uh, 34. Okay, okay, sorry. I didn't mean, I just let the, t- coming back. I get going. I lost myself. Say what? Jesus is up on a mountain. Thank you. Jesus is up on a mountain. Thank you. That was awesome. He's up on a mountain, and he's got Peter, James, and John. And Jesus is transfigured. Moses shows up. Elijah shows up. And God says, this is my son, and I'm super proud of him and pleased in him. Listen to what he has to say. They disappear. Jesus stops glowing. (laughs) And Jesus says to Peter, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, well, some people think you're a prophet. Other people think you're a king. Some think you're just like a really great, great guy. And Jesus says, yeah, I get that. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the Messiah, you remember what, Peter, what Jesus says to Peter? You're right. 
and that was not revealed to you through flesh and blood, that was revealed to you by God. And then he says, on this what? Rock, I am going to build my church. This rock is not Peter, this rock is the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. On this rock, that I am the Messiah, on this foundation that I am the Messiah, on the cornerstone principle that I am the Messiah, I will build my church. This is the heart of what God is doing in this parable through Jesus. God says to Israel, I've given you a chance over and over and over again. You have beat up my prophet servants, you have ran them out of town, and you are going to kill my son. You have rejected what I have asked you to do. And I have a heart for all people, God says. I always have. I've just wanted to use you as the medium to show people what it's like to be in relationship with me. But you've rejected that. You've rejected my son even. And it's harvest time. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are. So the implications are huge. Because now we're in 2019 and we have to look at this parable and say, oh man, I never want God to say that to me. I never want God to look at me and say, I've given you so many chances to make disciples. I've given you so many chances to follow me. I've given you so many chances So we learn some things about God here in this, princi- in, in this parable as we discover that God is changing the medium from the people of Israel to the church. We still find some powerful principles. And the first principle we find out about God is that God is extremely patient, isn't he? Extremely patient. That's why the actual word of patience is long-suffering. He suffers a long time because he knows the world you live in. He knows the situations you have going on in your life. He understands that life is full of sin and difficult, but he wants a relationship with you, not just to follow rules. So as he works out his goals in your life, as you surrender and follow him, he is patient with you because you're always getting off track, always. And so we know that God is patient with us. He was patient with Israel. He is patient with us. But the second character quality of God in this passage that's really hard for us is that uh, God has limits. There will be a time where he says, we're done. If you don't believe me, go to Revelation. Revelation is a book telling us how God is going to deal with sin and judgment, uh, sin in the world. It's the time that he is going to reap the harvest, as it were. That's why in 1 John chapter 2, verse, uh, let me find it. This verse is a sobering verse. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2. 
28. I mean, this is sobering. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. I mean, think about that. That's a sobering verse, right? Let's do what God asked us to do. Because when he shows up, we don't want to be embarrassed that we're not doing what he asked us to do. Because God has limits. So God said in the scope of history, I've had it in my heart that I would save all people. I used the medium, the people of Israel, to communicate how we are to live together. I sent my Messiah to them. But Israel has finally rejected me. Israel has rejected me like they did back in Samuel. I've sent them servant after servant after servant, and they have rejected me. They'd rather follow rules, they'd rather follow laws that have a relationship with me. And so I'm going to open the floodgates for all people by establishing the church so that all people can know what it's like to live a relationship with me by working in and through the church, my people who live and build a foundation on the cornerstone that I am the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And I am going to be patient with them because I love them and I am a patient God and I also have a time where I'm going to say enough is enough. And third and finally, we discover that God has given us a job to do. To harvest the fruit. We quoted the verse already. The, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are, why, why is that? Do you want to know when Jesus is coming back? I mean, we can't really know. Jesus even says, I'm not really sure when that is, which is mind-boggling to me. He says, I don't really know when I'm coming back. God's going to tell me. <laughs> but, but you know, scripturally, do you know scripturally how we can tell when Jesus is coming back? You know what he says? When every nation, tongue, and tribe have had an opportunity to hear about Jesus. So, if you want Jesus to come back, share the gospel. Support the initiatives of missionaries all over the world. Help Bibles get translated. Help people make disciples of all nations. Because what a glorious day will that be when Jesus comes and takes us as his people and transforms us and then gives us the power to reign and rule with him in the new kingdom. So the, so the, the, the religious leaders are saying, who and what gives you the authority to do any of this? And Jesus turns it on their head and says, look, my authority to you, whatever I have to say, really, you're not going to listen, so let me just tell you, God is kind of done with this way of doing things, and he's doing it a different way. You are sitting here in this church in relationship to this parable because God, God's heart was that you as a non-Jew could be in relationship with him. But he asked the same thing of you. Go make disciples so people can learn to live with me. So people can learn to follow me and have their lives be free from the consequences of sin. I am patient with you, but I am coming back and you have a job to do. Amen?
So Lord, we look at this parable and uh, we try to make sense of it the best we can. And Lord, I for one am thankful that you are long-suffering. I'm significantly moved, Lord, by the reality that, that you have given me a task to do. And I ask, Lord, for your strength and for your continued patience as I stumble and fall. Lord, I ask that you would use your people in profound and mighty ways in Fullerton, in Orange County, in California, in the United States, and to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.